everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 15% off your order. Hey everybody, it is Thursday, August 25th. I'm Mo Shwanunu and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I should know that today, officially August 25th, marks the 187th anniversary. I know random number, but it's notable. The New York Sun, which was a newspaper back in 1835, ran starting today a series of false news accounts saying a an astronomer had observed life on the moon, including winged human creatures. It was called the Great Moon Hoax and led to a whole uh, kind of reckoning when it came to fake news back then. So just, just so you know, uh, the pursuit of truthful and honest reporting has been something Americans have been looking for for a couple hundred years. Anyway, there's a lot we're watching today. Uh, We had officially yesterday the big announcement from the White House in regards to student loans. I'll tell you about who that will impact. We got new numbers out from the CDC on which Americans in which states are living the longest and which have the shortest lifespans. Hint, hint, the West is best. I'll have details there. We got a verdict last night in the lawsuit Kobe Bryant's widow filed against LA fire and police officials. And there's one more West Coast headline we'll actually also be bringing you today. California is set to make a major announcement when it comes to banning all gas cars today. I'll have details on that. But I want to start with the big announcement from the White House on Wednesday. President Biden officially unveiled his long-awaited plan to deliver student loan debt relief. Federal loan borrowers will be eligible for up to $10,000 in debt cancellation. And this goes for all Americans earning less than $125,000 a year or married couples filing jointly who make $250,000 a year or less. And to those who received Pell Grants, those are grants that go to the most low-income students in need, they'll be eligible for an extra $10,000 in relief above that initial $10,000 in debt cancellation. It is a long-awaited move that the White House says will offer some level of forgiveness for up to 43 million Americans. The White House actually estimates that nearly 90% of the relief will go to people earning less than $75,000 a year, and they add that about 20 million borrowers could see their debt completely canceled. 
The average debt, depending on the estimates you believe, uh, run anywhere between just under $20,000 up to $30,000. So the White House believes that a $10,000 debt cancellation will be pretty significant for many Americans. This cancellation of student debt is actually being paired with a plan to extend the freeze on federal student loan debt payments through the end of the year. But in January, many Americans who have not had to pay down their student loans since March of 2020 will have to begin doing so. Biden has been trying to put together here a loan forgiveness plan that comes in just right. You could call it the Goldilocks principle, not too hot, not too cold, just right. But ultimately, he is facing criticism from both sides. Right now, a lot of the criticism from the right has to do with cost. Right now, it looks like this plan will cost just over $300 billion. We're still waiting for the final estimates here. This is how the president addressed it on Wednesday. How do we pay for it? We pay for it by what we've done. Last year, we cut the deficit by more than $350 billion. This year, we're on track to cut it by more than $1.7 trillion by the end of this fiscal year. The single largest deficit reduction in a single year in the history of America. However, there are a number of independent analyses and Republicans who say that effectively this plan will negate all the savings in that recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, that this plan could effectively add to inflation. The counter argument here to the president is that people who were going to spend $10,000 on their student loan debt will now have it available for other parts of the economy, which they'll ultimately spend it in other parts, which could continue to raise prices. The criticism from the right is also that this is a play by President Biden and Democrats for votes in the midterm elections, which are just over 10 weeks from now. And this is effectively a plan to try to appeal to younger and minority voters uh, ahead of those midterms where currently the Democrats in the House and to a certain extent in the Senate are underdogs. The Biden counter argument here is that Republicans were fine with bailouts for big financial companies, for the big banks, for the airlines, for the auto industry, but not for individuals. And he was saying what is fair is fair, and he should be helping out average Americans, especially those who uh, have debt in the tens of thousands of dollars. But I did mention that Goldilocks principle uh, earlier. Biden is also facing criticism from his other side, from the left. This includes a number of consumer advocates and progressives who say that $10,000 in loan forgiveness is insufficient. They know that the average amount of debt could be up to $40,000, depending on how you average it out. And so some policy experts from the progressive side were proposing for giving up to $50,000. Uh, Biden thought that that was too far, so he went with the $10,000 plan. By the way, that $50,000 plan, if Biden had gone with it, would have cost uh, the U.S. government up to a trillion dollars. A reminder, the Biden plan is closer to $300 billion. So those were the top headlines. Biden also made a number of changes which will impact how people uh, repay their loans, which are also a pretty big deal and are pretty helpful, especially to low-wage earners. I will link to a detailed story in the show notes so you can read further about this to see if you're impacted, how you're impacted. The bottom line here is that 53% of federal student debtors owe $20,000 or less, according to Education Department statistics. So ultimately, the belief here at the White House is that this helps a majority of federal student debtors pay at least half, if not more, of their current debt. I have gotten notes from several of you who are asking about private loans. Sorry, no luck with this one. This is just in regards, all of this is just in regards to federal student loans. The big question in the coming weeks is, will this impact how people vote for Democrats or not in the midterm elections. All right, let's head abroad here. We've been following all the developments this week out of Ukraine and Russia. And unfortunately, as Ukrainians celebrated their Independence Day on Wednesday, a Russian missile hit a train station in central Ukraine, killing at least 22, 
injuring 50. Those were the numbers as of Wednesday night. The Russian attack was one of the deadliest on the Ukrainian railways since April. We were covering the story of the trains and the railway a lot in the early stages of the war. They were playing a huge role, providing a critical lifeline for millions of Ukrainians who were fleeing the fighting. Trains have also helped bring in more than 100,000 tons of humanitarian aid. Strikes on moving train cars have been exceedingly rare. We're still awaiting details on what exactly the Russian excuse was here. It all comes as Wednesday marks six months of war. President Zelensky addressed the nation, saying it as it commemorates 31 years of independence, that it has been reborn in this last year with a renewed sense of cultural and political identity. Zelensky added that the country is now wholly separate from Russia and has united many democracies around the world with its new sense of purpose. At the same time, the numbers and the tragedy that has befallen the nation are pretty stark. More than 13 million Ukrainians, one third of the population, have been displaced, with more than half of them now living outside the country. Tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians are dead. We don't even have real estimates here because it's been so hard for the Ukrainian government to get to certain parts of the country. Remember that the Russians currently occupy 20% of Ukraine. The nation's economy has also shrunk by half, and it will cost more than $200 billion to recover if it does ever, according to a number of estimates. At the same time, though, the Russian troops are bogged down. They suffer from low morale, a large death toll, many casualties, antiquated equipment. So we're looking right now for this war to potentially continue for months or years to come. It really depends on Vladimir Putin here. I did talk about all of this with the former CIA director, Michael Morell, on a podcast I put out yesterday. I would urge all of you to take a listen if you're interested in kind of the state of the war, the state of Putin's mind, all the various scenarios that could play out here and what the American role is. So give that podcast a listen. It was out yesterday. Okay, back here at home, we are watching some legal developments out of California, and there is a small victory for Vanessa Bryant. She is Kobe Bryant's widow. Vanessa, along with her co-plaintiff, Chris Chester, were awarded a combined $31 million by an LA jury on Wednesday evening. The final verdict did find that the LA County Sheriff's Department and Fire Department did share photos of their loved ones after the crash. The jury ordered the LA County Sheriff's Department to pay Vanessa Bryant $10 million, $2.5 million for pain and suffering, $7.5 million for any future pain and suffering, and to pay Chris a total of $9 million. They also ordered the LA Fire Department to pay the pair $6 million each for past and future pain and suffering. The trial revealed a lot of details about the aftermath of the January 2020 helicopter crash. We all saw those pictures with horror in the aftermath the, in the crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, as well as seven other people who were on board. Vanessa and Chris Chester, who tragically lost his wife, Sarah, and their 13-year-old daughter, Peyton, in the crash, sued LA County for emotional distress and mental anguish. That came after they learned that members of the department, as we've been discussing, had shared photos of the victim's remains with the media. The decision, by the way, came down coincidentally on Kobe Bryant Day, aka Mamba Day. That is a day that LA and the Lakers commemorate Kobe Bryant, whose jersey numbers were eight and 24. The uh, verdict came down on August 24th. I wanna stay with the accountability theme here. We learned late Wednesday that the embattled police chief of that Uvalde, Texas school district was fired on Wednesday night. This follows allegations that he made several critical mistakes during that mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. That was the shooting in Texas earlier this summer that left 19 students and two teachers dead. The district's board of trustees said it voted unanimously to dismiss the police chief. His name is Pete Arredondo. Arredondo has been on leave from the district since back in June. He's faced blistering criticism for the May 24th massacre, most notably for not ordering officers to immediately breach the classroom when that 18-year-old gunman carried out the attack. 
Arredondo is essentially in charge of all these entities. And we've uh, talked a lot on the Instagram feed in the newsletter and on this podcast about all the failures that have been witnessed and the hundreds of officers that actually showed up, but just the complete lack of communication, coordination here. And so Arredondo so far is the first officer who's been dismissed over the uh, fumbling law enforcement response. Okay, let's head back to California where regulators today will vote to put in place a sweeping plan to restrict and then ultimately ban the sale of all gas cars within 13 years. If all goes according to plan, you will see a headline across your phones later today that California will require that all new cars sold in the state by the year 2035 will be free of greenhouse gas emissions like carbon dioxide. The rule also sets interim targets between now and 2035, requiring within four years that a third of all new passenger vehicles produce zero emissions, and that requirement will climb to two-thirds of cars by the year 2030 in just over seven years. The new policy has the goal of accelerating the global transition towards electric vehicles. California is our nation's largest auto market, and incidentally, there's more than a dozen states that typically follow California's lead when setting their own auto emission standards. And so if those states follow through, those dozen states that follow California and adopt similar rules, essentially these new rules in regards to electric vehicles and a ban on gas cars could apply to a third of the nation's auto market. A reminder, as we talk about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, that transportation is the nation's top source of the planet warming substance. Now, there are a lot of critics of the policies. They say that a number of challenges lie ahead. There's a lack of charging infrastructure, major supply chain issues that will prevent us from producing enough cars for California to meet this goal. And of course, there's still sticker price issues. Electric cars are still much more expensive than gasoline-powered cars. And so they say that there's an issue here for folks in lower income levels to be able to meet this new requirement. There are also concerns about potential strains on the electrical grid and expect to see legal challenges here. There's a group of attorneys general from Republican states that have filed a lawsuit challenging California's ability to set its own pollution rules. You might also remember that former President Trump had fought California's authority under the Clean Air Act. This is a federal act. Uh, they fought California's ability to set its own rules regulating automobile pollution. So we will likely see a whole bunch of lawsuits related to this as well. Okay, as I promised at the top, we are getting new numbers on American lifespans from the CDC, where Americans live the longest and where Americans have the shortest lives. According to the latest numbers, Americans born in Hawaii, who live in Hawaii, live nine years longer on average than Mississippi natives. The report highlights wide state-to-state -state disparities in health and longevity. Life expectancy at birth was shortest in many Southern US states, with Mississippi coming in last place with an average lifespan of just under 72 years. Joining the South with the shortest lifespans were also Indiana, Missouri, New Mexico, Ohio, and Oklahoma. Meanwhile, people living in the Western and Northeastern states tend to have longer lives, according to the report. Hawaii with the longest lifespan at 81 years old. I'm going to link to a map in the show notes so you can take a look at the lifespan wherever you live. Overall, when you average all 50 states and D.C. out, U.S. life expectancy shortened by almost two years from 2019 to 2020, down to an average lifespan here in the U.S. of 77 years old. There's also a study that came out earlier this year that showed that U.S. life expectancy went down in 2021 again. So it actually looks like the last two years have literally taken two and a quarter years off the average American lifespan. And it's not great when you look at the U.S. against the world. Life expectancy is not something we can gloat about. Despite having the highest health care costs per person in the world, our country ranks 40th in longevity overall, just behind Turkey and just ahead of Ecuador, according to the most recent data. 
And when you compare individual US states to the world, this is interesting. Hawaii lags behind the global leader Japan uh, just by a couple years. In Japan, you can expect to live 84 years. Meanwhile, Mississippi, where you can expect to live just under 72 years, is comparable to countries like Egypt, Honduras, Guatemala, and Bolivia. The report here does cite a couple of reasons for why, especially the U.S. South, has low life expectancy. They cite things like poverty and physical inactivity. Meanwhile, like I said, the West is best. Just behind Hawaii is Washington State, where life expectancy is just over 79. The report looked at factors like obesity, smoking, exercise frequency, and binge drinking as they broke down these numbers. One important factor as to why you saw lifespans go down was COVID-19 that obviously impacted the entire world. There was also a factor here in the US that was more specific to us. That is the epidemic of opioid abuse. Nearly 80,000 Americans lost their lives to the opioid epidemic in just the 12 month period between April 2020 and April 2021. One more thing as we break down these numbers, men fared much more poorly than women. U.S. women overall lived nearly six years longer than men. Men have an average lifespan of just over 74 years, while women, 79.9, just, just under 80 years old, was the average lifespan for American women. Okay, one more piece of health news before we go. In one of the biggest studies ever to examine the relationship between psychedelics and mental health therapy, researchers from NYU have found that magic mushrooms are incredibly effective at treating alcohol use disorder. This could be a major breakthrough for millions of alcoholics in the country. The substance psilocybin, which is found in several species of mushrooms, can actually cause hours of vivid hallucinations. Indigenous people have been using it in healing rituals, and scientists are exploring whether it can ease depression or help longtime smokers and, again, alcoholics quit. So this study, which was published this week in the journal JAMA Psychiatry, is the first of its kind to involve a placebo-controlled trial. They recruited 93 participants with alcohol dependence. The volunteers who received two doses of mushrooms combined with psychotherapy saw an 83% reduction in heavy drinking days within eight months of treatment. Meanwhile, those who received a placebo but still got psychotherapy saw a 51% reduction. Almost half of those who they studied who got psilocybin stopped drinking entirely compared to 24% of the control group. The folks at NYU say that more research is still needed to see if the effect lasts and whether it works in a larger study. I heard from one of you on Instagram who touted this saying that psilocybin effectively saved his life. He was not involved in this study, but he said that alcoholism nearly took his life and that using mushrooms has saved it. There are only three conventional drugs that are currently approved to treat alcohol use disorder, and there have been no new drug approvals in nearly 20 years. A reminder here that while they did use this in the study, psilocybin is still illegal here in the US, though Oregon and several cities have decriminalized it. Starting next year, Oregon will actually allow its supervised use as long as it's being uh, watched by licensed facilitators. Anyway, that is some really interesting news, and I will continue to keep everyone updated on that. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Uh, this is it for me this week. I'll be taking tomorrow off, but I will be back on Monday. I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, what we're covering, and what more you'd like to see. Please email me over at podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com, where you can get deep dives into a bunch of issues and the latest headlines. And don't forget, if you don't already, please follow me over on Instagram at Moshe. This is where it all started, at M-O-S-H-E-H, -E for the latest and greatest in the news. News 24-7 in your Instagram feed. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. And please leave me a review in the App Store. Every review matters, and I really appreciate all the support. I'll see everyone back here on Monday.